0: Would you just bow with me in prayer, please? Father, I'm just thinking of the line in the song we just sang, um, let me stay and rest in your holiness. It's a provocative line because there's no way any of us could be at rest in the presence of your holiness except that we would be shielded by Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior your holiness would send any sinner away from your presence in guilt and shame. And we were once sinners, but you don't look at us that way anymore, for you see in us the righteousness of Christ. For those who have turned in saving faith and repentance and appropriating the sacrifice of Christ upon their life by faith, we can be at rest in your holiness. And that is profound. So I pray, Lord, that even as Aaron admonished us this morning rightly, we do sing to you, but we instruct and admonish one another. We declare these truths not to be my personal truth, but your truth for all mankind that has bearing on all of our lives. Corporately, relationally, and upon all the world. We see ourselves in perspective to these truths by your grace. Uh, God, I pray now that as we look again at what the Apostle Paul has to teach us in 2 Corinthians 5, that we would understand the life changing orientation of the gospel, that it would really sink in, that it would not be dismissed for its familiarity but would almost offend us afresh, that we might really understand what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. So guide us not just to the understanding of your word, but to be rightly provoked and animated by it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> in your notes... Uh, I'll give you a heads up here. We're just working on the first two-thirds of this. This was one of those weeks where I'm digging along, enjoying my study thoroughly to the fear of the congregation, and I just had to kind of throw up my hands and say, I got more than one Sunday here, Lord. So we're going to take a pause about two-thirds of the way in and save sort of the real guts of it, uh, which is the the last third. We're going to save that for next week. So um, you're welcome for that. I'm not giving you two sermons on one day. Uh, sometimes in our lives there is such an event, um, such a significant life event that it, it really changes the way you view yourself, maybe even sort of your personal or family timeline. Uh, it could be such a big deal that you almost refer to your life before and after this event, right? Uh, it could be a wonderful event, it could be a tragic event. It could be a car accident. Uh, it could be a house fire. Uh, An illness, relocation, uh, a deployment, marriage, death of a loved one, birth of a baby, an adoption, uh, or you just became a grandparent. Uh, Sort of these before and after life-changing moments that really change our perspective uh, of things. Again, you might even sort of describe your life as before and after. Uh, a couple of these that came to mind for me was uh, when Aiden was born. Uh, he's almost 17 now, and I remember with Amy going to the hospital as a couple and leaving as a family. And it was just the most profound transformation. It was like, how did that happen? You know, And, and, and I know many of you could probably relate to this. I remember coming home uh, with this new baby thinking, who let us leave? And where are all the nurses? Because we have no idea what we're doing. And I had one of those little Leatherman Micra keychain uh, little tools, you know what I'm talking about, with a little pair of scissors on it. And I remember him sitting there, this is so, such a distinct memory for me, sitting there on the changing table, first diaper change. And, and I'm thinking, well, while he's here, he's still got this tag on his ankle. I should cut this off. And it was, it was like this moment of, well, he's ours now. You know, <laughs> we, took the, we removed the tags. I can't take them back. I don't have a receipt, and the tags are off. <laughs> so we're stuck. Um, but of course, you know, you have kids, and that's, that's a before and after event, right? Yeah. Uh, I also remember uh, after marriage. I mean, it was such a strange thing to walk off of the, uh, the stage after our wedding and to be pronounced Mr. and Mrs. Johns, holy cow, I have a wife, you know, to use that word for the first time. That was Wild. And we had, you know, just a great time honeymooning on the Oregon coast in Cannon Beach. That's kind of one of our favorite spots in the world, if you know that. Um, But maybe the most um, sort of life-changing aspect about this that I remember is kind of funny. But I remember coming home after our honeymoon, coming back to uh, what was my bachelor apartment. And sort of walking through the threshold of the doors, dropping the bags, went to the fridge, grabbed a soda sat down on the couch turned on sports center like okay it's cave time and then amy sat down next to me and i looked to her and i thought you're never leaving <laughs> how romantic is that right like wow this is this is my cave time and now there's another creature in the cave with me right and now there's a whole bunch of creatures in the cave with us and uh, just kind of one of those life-changing moments of this is the new reality. Never be the same again. The world will never be the same again. I will view it through the lens of these uh, life events. And as Paul sort of continues on in 2 Corinthians 5, he really demonstrates how the gospel has had a profound life-changing impact upon him it was a life-changing encounter there was a before and an after and it sort of reorients the way that we view ourselves the way that we view mankind around us and the way that we view God and his work in the world it is a completely life-changing encounter so look with me in chapter 5 starting at verse 11 Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. The new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. (coughs) We're going to pause right there, and that's about as far as we're going to go today. And so the first point I want to draw out from this is that the gospel changes how we view ourselves. Uh, We just finished talking about uh, future judgment. That's what was in the text sort of preceding this, in particularly... The, the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat. And uh, this is the occasion, and a, what has been called as a happy occasion, which is unique to believers. The Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. It is not a judgment that brings punishment. Uh, not a judgment that uh, determines destinies. Those things are determined at the great white throne of judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is a different judgment altogether. And I think, as I argued last week, it should be best understood as an award ceremony uh, where there's the sort of the weighing of our deeds that have been done in the body to determine what are worthy of rewards and what simply are not. But it does not bring consequence or judgment because our sins have been paid for in Christ. And they no longer have bearing upon us. So when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not, what can I do to you now? That's already been Determined in Christ and punished in Him as our substitute. It's simply an evaluation of what might be rewarded and how. And again, it is, I think it's important to understand that. But, but now having said that, while it is a privilege and a place that we receive rewards, it will still be an awesome thing to stand in the presence of Christ. To stand before the one who died for us. To stand before the one who took our place and took our judgment and gave us our lives back and set us on a course. It will be an awesome thing to stand before him when he looks at us with the perspective of, what did you do with the life I gave back to you? That will be an awesome thing. And I will argue that that will produce in us a holy fear. Not terror right, not guilt, not shame, for we are accepted in Christ, but there will still be a holy and reverent fear as we stand before our Savior and Lord. Whenever Amy goes away on a trip, (coughs) excuse me, Um, I I don't know if other guys do this or not, so this will be interesting to me. Uh, You can tell me afterwards. But whenever she goes away on a trip, I, I sort of think, oh, I want to do some projects around the house while she's gone. Um, and I do this for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because I want her to come back, right? You know, I want her to, to leave with the sense of things will be better when I get home, not worse. So there's a little, there's a little coaxing here. That's part of it. And, uh, and another reason I do this is because I really love it when she comes back and says, wow, look at all you did while I was gone. I love that. I love hearing. it. I don't know why, but, um, but I do, and actually, if I'm truthful, the conversation usually goes something like this. I can't believe how efficient and how much you can get done when I'm gone. How do you do that? And then she says, how are the kids? And I go, kids? <laughs> you know, like, that's right, we have children, don't we? They were with me, huh? You know." Um, so that's kind of how that goes. But in uh, as much as I want to please my wife, Uh, With my efforts to sort of tend to the home when she's out of town, you know, how much more should I want to please my Lord tending to his business while he's gone? So that when he returns and I face him, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Not, Eh, I thought you could do better, you know? And this is, of course, the takeaway from the parable of the talents. Talents not being our skills or abilities in life necessarily, but talents, of course, in the parable was a was a a unit of uh, a measurement of money, basically uh, what had been left to these folks? what would they do with what God had entrusted to them and and how would their earthly master sort of gauge them uh, and sort of their responsiveness and and responsibility to it, and in the same way, how will the Lord look upon what He has entrusted to us, all that has entrusted to us? What will we have done with it for his sake? And so Paul argues that basically this coming reality of the judgment seat of Christ, uh, basically, in light of this, we see ourselves as accountable to God. Since we know then what it is to fear the Lord, this moment's ahead of us, we try to persuade others. We're tending to our master's business. We have been given a gift, a trust, a charge, and that is the gospel itself. And again, as Paul has already uh, described it just a couple weeks ago, we looked at this, it is a treasure, right, in these jars of clay that we carry around with us. But it is a treasure. And as he points out here, Christ will want to know what we have done with this treasure that he has left to us. In fact, I will say this, God already knows, right? So this encounter isn't a discovery for him. It is, however, a face-to-face recognition between him and us. Yes, we agree this is what has or has not been done with what you have entrusted to me. So it is a moment of accounting. Um, and as we see here, Paul is really driven by this. Uh, it drives, uh, really, his, th- this future reality drives all of his, his action, all of his life, um, the treasure of, of the gospel and the reality of the Lord's coming evaluation of him drive him to persuade others to saving faith. If you remember, Paul had a pretty dramatic encounter with the risen Lord, right? Uh, On the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, I think it is, where he's going along and the text says he is still breathing out murderous threats against the church. And yet, the risen Lord appears to him. And his conversion is, is sort of what flows out of this, and it results in a complete life change. Before this encounter, he is enemy number one of the church. After this encounter, he is apologist number one of the church. It changed the course of his life. And so the question I have for you, Christian, is, has your understanding of the gospel message changed the course of your life? Or is it just another feature of your life? just an accessory, just a compartment. It ought to completely reorient us and to reorient all of our priorities. This phrase here, with this, we try to persuade men. It gets fleshed out for us in the next chapter, chapter 6, verses 3 through 13, where we kind of are shown the lengths that Paul goes to to be a witness for Christ. Uh, Look at this with me, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance and troubles, hardship and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through the glory and dishonor. Bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have freely spoken to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding your affection from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. And so here in this passage, and many others like it, we can really see the lengths that Paul went to for the sake of the gospel and for speaking it to others. This really stood out to me this week as I read a report, and maybe you you saw this this week, there was a a new study that was just done by the Barna Group, uh, actually about two weeks ago. And it cites this. So contrast what you just heard in Paul and his ministry and his efforts for the gospel. Contrast that with this statistic. That nearly 50% of practicing Christian millennials, and then millennials is if you were born from 1981 to 96, your ages, or your age is 22 to 37, nearly 50% of practicing Christian millennials today view evangelism as morally wrong. Should we take a poll? Millennials? No, we won't do that right now. I was shocked to hear that. So let me say it one more time. Nearly 50% of practicing Christian millennials today view evangelism as morally wrong. That's the culture we're raising. In contrast to what Paul says here, Since we know what it is to fear God, we persuade men. And I think one of the things that the statistic reveals, and statistics reveal lots of things, right? It does reveal that millennials seem more concerned about their acceptability in the world than about their accountability to Christ. And so if you're a millennial this morning and you identify with that particular statistic, I lay before you the scriptures and the gospel and the cross of Christ, and say, reconsider your primary affections and accountability. The gospel is meant to change not just our position with God, but also the way we see ourselves in this world, and our responsibilities to it. Consider what the Apostle Paul has said, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul, uh, C.S. Lewis, almost the same thing. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because I see everything by it. The gospel has this reorienting picture for us. It's not just how we see ourselves before Christ, but now how we see the world as we are in Christ and can rest in God's holiness because of Christ. Secondly here, so we see ourselves accountable to God, we also we don't worry about the opinion of others. Uh, let me just make a, tr- a statement that I think you will find to be true here. If you share the gospel with others, if you speak about Jesus in everyday conversation, you will. Your friends will probably many of them will put you on the crazy list. Right, you're all oh, you're one of those. And so here, in a little bit of a turn of phrase, I would simply say this, but better to be on their crazy list than on God's lazy list. Okay. <laughs> How about that? Um, Since then, what we know, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Now the context here, uh, sort of the immediate situation uh, that sort of surfaces Paul's comments at this point is that some false apostles, if you remember this, some false apostles have settled into Corinth and are basically poaching on the ministry of the Apostle Paul there. And they're basically trying to discredit him and the other uh, the uh, workers alongside him. And one of their tactics has been basically to try to show him to be a crazy man and a zealot. And honestly, it wouldn't maybe look that hard, or it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to make him look that way when you consider some of the things that he has been doing. Um, you can see this particular accusation as Paul lays it out. Paul is out of his mind. It's in quotations, as some say. But whereas these false apostles would accuse him of being a crazy zealot or out of his mind, when you see his ministry efforts and you see his sufferings, what you see is his true affinity and his true affection, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not concerned about the opinion of others, at least not for his own sake, only for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul simply states here, he goes on to say, that it is the love of Christ that compels us to share the gospel. And this is kind of actually a tricky uh, Greek phrase in, in the original language here. It can have either one of two legitimate meanings, the love of Christ. It looks very plain, right? But consider this. It could mean the love that Christ as the source has for us, the recipient, love of Christ. Or it could mean, The love that we, as the source, have for Christ as the recipient. So you can see, just linguistically, both are actually uh, possible here, and it's usually the context that helps to sort of clear this up. And I think the, the context here tells us everything about the initiative of God, the gift of God, the work of God, that He is reconciling mankind to Himself. All of this is from God. And so I think it's really clear from the context that what Paul is talking about here is this love and affection that is sourced in Christ that we have received. That compels us, that moves us forward. What is unmistakably clear is that the result of this love is evangelism, it's gospel proclamation, it is a desire to persuade others let simply frame it for you this way. If Christ can leave the abode of heaven and take on human flesh and die at the hands of sinners with all of the sin of humanity poured into him at the cross, then surely we can leave our comfort zones and be his ambassadors. And, and the question I have for you, and I mean for you to leave with this question, is why don't we? Or, or why don't you? I, I'd like you to c- consider that and ponder that and say, why am I not a more ready witness for Christ in my everyday encounters? What is it that holds me back? Um, and I, I, would, I think very possibly one of the things that, that truly holds us back is that our affections have not truly been stirred we don't have, we we don't recognize the love that Christ has for us. We just understand these as theological truths, theoretical truths, but I'm not sure that we truly grasp the love that God has for us and that he has poured out for us in Christ. Now, if I can kind of go back to that statistic about millennials, isn't that such a pejorative term? Millennials. It never sounds good, right? So sorry, guys. I didn't make it up, but if there is, um, if I could sort of speculate on what I think millennials who answered this question that way might be saying, and maybe even identify with them just a little bit, I speculate that what millennials' objection to evangelism is something like this. They reject to it as they've seen it done. That's my guess. That's what, what I suspect. Um, I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it again. Some of you are new. Uh, This was about seven years ago, I went to visit a friend down in Eugene, Oregon, and it was kind of late February day, if I remember right, Uh, it was early spring, it was kind of one of those first warm days of the year, you know, and so we were walking downtown looking for a place to grab lunch, and we sort of came down this one street, this one corridor, and on one side there was this brewery, it was this really old, beautiful sort of brick building, you know, and it had a pretty wide sidewalk next to it and some bistro tables outside. And on this just kind of beautiful, warm day when trees were just starting to, to bud, a little bit crisp, but it was, it was still warm. And against the backdrop of this brick wall, the sun was shining, and it was warm out there, and people were sitting there having a nice bite to eat, and most of them a beer. They are at a brewery, right? And kitty-corner from this, there was this group of people, well, I'll use air quotes and call them Christians, okay? And they stood on that street corner, and they declared condemnation over these people across the street about how they were all going to hell. Jumping up and down and carrying on and street preaching and whatever. And I, 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 my friend and I are both believers. We were walking through this scene and we were just ashamed. Absolutely ashamed of this ridiculous spectacle that so-called Christians were making. There was no love of Christ in their speech. There was no love for these people in their speech. It was just condemnation. So if I can identify a little bit with millennials in this particular case, it might be evangelism as they've seen it done. Uh, I told you before too, and I'll say it again because I like to ruffle your feathers every now and then, but we walked away ashamed, but what I wish I had done with all of my heart, I wish I had gone back to every one of those tables and bought them a beer and an appetizer and said, you know, if Jesus were here, he'd sit down and chat with you, and you would feel his love and acceptance, not the condemnation that these guys are throwing at you. I was ashamed. I was ashamed of the Christians and the people were, were, that were being accosted. You know, honestly, they weren't even, I, I don't know how to say it, I'm not even sure they were offended. I think the Christians just looked like such idiots that it was laughable to them. We were, they were a shameful spectacle. Or consider the evangelism that you see from outfits like Westboro Baptist Church. You know this group? picketing funerals and whatnot. I can't even hardly call them a church. Uh, another one that's particularly bothersome to me is um, the littering of gospel tracts. I, I can't stand that, if I'm honest with you. I don't know anybody who you know walks around and goes, hey, look, trash, and picks it up and starts reading it and goes, that's really great. I feel so loved right now. Uh, if I could frame it this way, You know, when God wanted to save the world, he didn't sprinkle leaflets from heaven. He sent his son. He sent a person in the flesh, incarnate, to be with, to love. Christ was incredibly compassionate for the unbelieving sinner who was moving towards repentance. He was incredibly harsh on the religious establishment who created obstacles for those people. So I would simply ask you, In your evangelism efforts, where do you see yourself in this? Paul's ministry was saturated by love. He tells the the Thessalonians, right? We were delighted not only to share the gospel with you, but what? Our lives as well. We were with you. We loved you. He refers to the Corinthians here as, as though you were my children. There is an affection. Love is to be the compelling force for evangelism. The love that we have experienced in Christ. A genuine love for neighbor in their present state. Our love for them doesn't start at their conversion, it precedes it. And that is, I think, something Christians are falling down on. There is no perception or awareness that Christians love unbelievers. It's almost like, well, we'll love you someday if, rather than loving them now. Uh, unfortunately, I think love is seldom the tenor of the church's evangelism. Rather, I think it is guilt, smugness, anger, judgment. That seems to be the tone of evangelism today. Um, if you're feeling convicted by this or persuaded to con- reconsider the tone of your own evangelism, then there's a couple books that I would recommend to you. It's on your, they're on your notes. Uh, one is um, by Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, Uh, The gospel comes with a house key. Uh, The other is The Allure of Gentleness by Dallas Willard. Those are two that I think would be helpful for you. Fourth point we make here is this. We live now for Christ. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. And was raised again. And I think uh, sort of Paul makes a difficult point here in verse 14. I think his logic's a little bit difficult to sort of trace out. But essentially what he's saying is that Christ's death is the defining act in all of human history. And that we need to see the world now through the lens of the gospel, through that particular event. The implication being that since Christ died for all, all of our lives will be evaluated in relationship to his sacrificial death. In other words, his death either vindicates us, or it leaves us in a state of condemnation for sin. His death has a death-like bearing on all of our lives. Either we look to him, or we stand against him. Either we receive him uh, and his death, or we reject it. In other words, there's no neutral position to Jesus. Because of his death, you're either exonerated by his death, or it shows that your sin is still held against you. And So the life we live in the body, we live to Christ. And so this, this first thing I want to show here is that the gospel has changed this first relational sphere. That is how we see ourselves and our lives before God. The second sphere that we see here that is changed by the gospel is how we view others. And I'm going to hit this really quick, so don't be afraid here. The gospel changes our view of others. So from now on, We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. There, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And so Paul uses this phrase here that we view no one with this uh, worldly point of view. And so I think that sort of begs the question for us what is a worldly point of view that Paul is referring to here? The worldly point of view is basically a way of classifying people simply by their outward appearances. In other words, man or woman, national or international, right? Alaskan or Lower 48er, conservative, liberal, gay or straight. I'm going to throw that out there. I know I'm rustling some feathers here. Rich or poor adversary, or ally. These are externals in a person's life, and they're a way that we tend to look at somebody and classify our fellow man and judge them by these externals. Typically, they're a way that we determine, is this person in my tribe or not? It's a worldly point of view, judging someone by outward externals. But what Paul is concerned about here is about the heart of a person, specifically, where do they stand with Christ? That's the lens that he wants to view people through. In other words, the fundamental issue is, are they with Christ or are they outside of Christ? And I would tell you, friends, that there are just way too many Christians that are trying to change the world from the outside in. And it's like going around trying to put out a fire with a squirt gun. When a reservoir of God's love poured out in Christ is available, the gospel changes people from the inside out. And too many Christians are simply trying to sanitize the world instead of using the gospel, the main thing that God has given to us and the most powerful tool for change. Change the heart, change the man. Again, God has not given us the mandate to sanitize the world, He has left to us the ministry of reconciliation that is reconciling man to God through the gospel. That's the ministry he's left to us, and we're going to get to more of that next week. Um, Let me just go on to the last point here because we're about out of time. I'm going to steal another line from the Apostle C.S. Lewis. (laughs) Uh, That's a joke, by the way. (laughs) Uh, He makes this great quote uh, that there are no ordinary people. Have you heard this before? This is taken from The Weight of Glory. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. C.S. Lewis confronts us with something shocking, that every person is immortal. In other words, you will spend eternal, uh, eternal life somewhere. And all of our interactions help someone to one destination or another. We can't be dismissive of anybody. But we need to consider the full weight and dignity of every person that God has made. Each person made in God's image. And so what I want you to get out of these first couple of sections here is this. The gospel changes the way we see ourselves and our place in this world. It changes the way we see mankind around us. And as we're going to see next week, the gospel changes the way we see God and his work in this world. And that's what we're going to focus on next week. So would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would really consider the implications of the gospel in our own life. That we would really think and even imagine what it is we have been saved from and what it is we have been saved to. That we we would really have a sense of the incredible love that was poured out in Christ that he would die for us sinners. That our sin would be poured into him at the cross. So that we are now new creatures. The old is gone and the new has come. God, may that event, our responsiveness to the gospel, may it be absolutely life-changing. The way we see ourselves in this world so that our faith is not just a feature of life, but the central point of our existence. May it change the way we see ourselves in this world, Understanding will be accountable to you for this treasure you've entrusted to us. And God, may we truly love our fellow man. Recognizing that all mankind are in different states of sin. That is the outworking of their separation from you. So may we be vigilant about not sanitizing the world and their sins. But changing their position with Almighty God. By being ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that's what changes a person from the inside out. God, may we be oriented by the gospel, be truly evangelical, not a religious right-wing voting block, but a block of people who have been saved by the life and death of Christ Jesus and try to persuade others that they might be as well. So guide us in these truths. May we live in them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.